The Planet Earth Podcast, presented by Sue Nelson. Hello, today we're at the top of the Manchester Ice Cloud Chamber, and in a moment I'll be meeting a scientist with one of the coolest jobs on the planet. There's also a fishy tale of sexual harassment, and we get rather too close to comfort to a deadly snake. I don't want to put my microphone too close to this, given that... Whoa! Rather him than me there, but thankfully I'm safe and sound in the University of Manchester's School of Earth, Atmospheric and Environmental Science. And I'm at the top of an extremely tall ice cloud chamber. And in order to find out what goes on here, I've got to go down several flights of stairs to meet Dr Paul Connolly. The cloud chamber is uh, over three storeys high, and uh, that means ten metres high. It's one metre in diameter, and it's made of stainless steel. Well, it doesn't look like stainless steel at the moment, because at the bottom here it looks like a giant fridge-freezer door, so I assume in order to see all the stainless steel, we need to go inside and see the chamber for ourselves. Here we go. Iron. Oh, you can really feel the, uh, the cold in here. What's the temperature? At the moment, the temperature's set to minus 15 degrees Celsius. The cold room itself can be controlled to as warm as room temperature all the way down to minus 55 degrees Celsius. What's that? That sudden rush, rush of air then? Is, what's that? That was, the, that was the fan being switched on that um, blows the cold air into the room. Can you feel that cold air? I can, yes. So it's obviously trying to get it colder still. You can see from looking at the chamber here this big silver circular cylinder coming down from the ceiling so we can see how it's, it's come down from the, the floors above. It ends about halfway down this room, which is rooms probably around three metres high, and then the cylinder stops where it's connected to, to, to different pieces of equipment. Now, I assume at least one of these pieces of equipment is a, a sort of almost looks like a, a cooler box there, help to make the clouds. Well, the cooler box that you just described, that's the, actually the steam generator, which we use to make the cloud. Or you could just say it's basically it's a kettle. So we fill it up with water, we switch it on, and we boil the water, and we make steam. And that steam then rises through the chamber, and because it's buoyant and warm air rises, it fills the chamber with a cloud of droplets. Is there any specific type of cloud that you're looking for, or will just any cloud do? Well, we're mainly interested in ice clouds, and that's because the properties of ice clouds are much less well understood than the properties of liquid clouds. It's funny because I think most people would think, well, a cloud is, is a cloud. It's, it's made of droplets because we get rain, but you think of them in terms of liquid clouds and ice clouds. Mm. That's right, yeah. And in the atmosphere, you can see liquid clouds. They're the kind of fluffy clouds that you see, or cumulus clouds. When you see clouds high up in the atmosphere that have like a a hair or a lock of hair appearance... The sort of wispy ones? The wispy clouds, yeah. They're they're called cirrus clouds and they contain only ice. Well, I I must admit, I'm beginning to feel a bit bit like an an icy cloud myself now. So let's walk up a level and um, see what goes on further up the ice chamber itself. Final stairs now. So we're at the top of the ice chamber now. Three storeys. I mean, that's not very high, but that's still enough height for you to make 
your ice clouds? Because in the atmosphere, they need hundreds of kilometres to do that, don't they? That's right, actually. We were surprised how efficiently snow can form when it only has to fall through uh, a distance of 10 metres. I assume it's going to be as open the door. probably a bit colder than the one downstairs because uh, there's been a time for it to cool down even further. Exactly, yeah. So we're in the airlock now. Again. We're just about to go into the cold air. Back we go. Oh, yes. Ooh. Not as much equipment, and unlike the one at the bottom, the chamber, this is the start of it, so it actually goes from the ceiling to the floor this time. Right, if, uh, obviously, the, uh, we wanna, don't want to stand here too long because it's, it's, uh, we can hear that fan, the air's going to be cooled even further. Now, you've got a, what looks like a sort of medical syringe in your hands. Yeah, I mean, it's a very simple piece of apparatus, but it does the job perfectly, really. I can demonstrate how we turn the cloud of drops into an ice cloud with this syringe here. And I put a cap on the end of the syringe. I filled it with some air. And now I'm just compressing the air. So you're just so pushing it forward ever so slowly. That instant, the, the air is actually warmer than the ambient air, ever so slightly. But then it cools down very quickly to the temperature of the ambient air. Now, if I push further... During that, the time of that pop, the air was expanding very quickly. And when air expands very quickly like that, the pressure of the air is reduced and the temperature of the air also cools just by conservation of energy. And the temperature it actually gets to is minus 40 degrees Celsius. Only for a brief instant, but that's all that's required to turn that liquid cloud in the chamber into an ice cloud. We're in front of a cloud particle imager now, which is basically a computer screen with, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six by four, four, six, it's 24 black and white images so these are all images of droplets in the cloud. Yeah, and at this temperature, minus 15, you should see uh, crystals with a six-fold symmetry, which is typically what your uh, standard snowflake looks like. And how small are these droplets? These drops are around about 30 microns in size, which uh, a micron is a millionth of a, of a metre. So it's 30 millionths of a metre. And why are you doing this research? Stratocumulus clouds, which are thin clouds near the surface of the Earth, we know that they uh, capture long-wave terrestrial radiation, so the, the radiation that the Earth emits, and they act like a blanket. And they also reflect uh, solar radiation back to space. But for uh, ice clouds, such as cirrus, the radiative effects of cirrus in the atmosphere we're not too certain of. We still know they trap long-wave radiation. In terms of the, the amount of solar radiation that they reflect back to space or transmit through the cirrus. We're very unsure of that, and it can have a big effect on climate. Dr Paul Connolly at the University of Manchester's Ice Cloud Chamber. This is the Planet Earth podcast, and I'm Sue Nelson. In a few minutes, a close encounter with a deadly snake. First, some other stories you'll find on the Planet Earth online website this week. Scientists have discovered that a tiny wasp in Namibia, just one and a half millimetres long, can pollinate fig trees up to 160 kilometres apart. After mating inside a fig, the female wasps emerge at night carrying a precious load of pollen. They're then carried through the night by the prevailing wind in the west until they reach the next tree. Once there, they pollinate the flowers, lay their eggs inside a fig and die. 
These wasps are the only insects that can pollinate the fig trees, and if it wasn't for the wind carrying them, the fig trees wouldn't be there. The Samos satellite being blasted into space from northern Russia on the 2nd of November. Since then, Europe's soil moisture and ocean salinity satellite has successfully unfurled its three arms, equipped with a total of 69 sensors. The satellite will make the first global measurements of soil moisture and ocean salinity to improve our understanding of how water is transported around the Earth and how it circulates through the oceans. Merrick Strokos from the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton is a co-investigator on the mission. We're interested in the ocean salinity because the effects of the ocean density. The ocean density is controlled by uh, temperature and salinity and uh, the density structure of the ocean is, is uh, important for understanding the currents in the ocean and how the ocean circulation works. So we want to know about both the temperature and the salinity. We've been making measurements from ships in terms of temperature and salinity for many years but the problem is that we want a global picture and we can really only get a global picture from a satellite. And you'll hear a longer interview with Merrick on the Planet Earth online website. But we'll end our news with sexual harassment and strategic behaviour from fish. Scientists from the University of Exeter have found that female guppy fish in the Caribbean take more risks when surrounded by males. Female guppies in Trinidad endure extreme sexual harassment from amorous males. The males are looking for someone to mate with, so the females move around constantly to avoid too much male attention. But if a predator like a kingfisher is around, the fish freeze in the hope they won't get eaten. And once the danger has passed, they go back to swimming around. Researchers discovered that if female fish are surrounded by other females, they stay still for longer to make absolutely sure they don't get eaten. But if surrounded by males, staying still means they risk sexual harassment. And in this situation, the females start moving around much sooner and risk the possibility of being eaten by a predator simply to avoid being hit on. And if you want more information on those stories, then check out the rest of the Planet Earth online website. Now to those snakes. Scientists at Bangor University in North Wales have found different species of deadly viper tailor their venom to particular prey. Knowing about variations in snake venom can help save lives. Anti-venoms developed for one snake variety may not work for another. Richard Hollingham went to Bangor to meet Wolfgang Wuster and his snakes. This is our venomous snake facility at Bangor, which we use for various lines of work. So we have a number of snakes here of different species from different projects. We have some rattlesnakes from a biogeography project, some lance-headed pit vipers from systematics project, and we have the saw-scaled vipers, which were the centre of our venom work. Well, let's go in through the door. Inside, the hot, windowless room is stacked, almost floor-to-ceiling, with transparent tanks. In each one, there's a snake. Some are large, like the beautiful diamond-patterned rattlesnakes. Others are much smaller. All of them are potentially dangerous. The ones we've been working with recently are the saw-scaled vipers, which are much less impressive in terms of size, but very impressive in terms of the punch that they pack when they bite someone. They're very small snakes, but they have very highly potent venom, and bites from these snakes kill a large number of people every year. Now, this snake is in a, a small tank. Is it OK to get, to get close? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, OK. It's about the width of my finger. How long is it? Because it's all 
curled up, coiled up in the moment. These are around about 50 centimeters long. The largest saw-scaled vipers you'll ever see are about 75 centimeters long, but average size in the wild is more like 40 to 50. So they're in fact rather smaller than the British adder. So about half a meter long and again, beautiful patterns on the side, almost feathery, feathery diamonds on the side, these patches all the way along. Yes, it's actually an excellent camouflage pattern. If you imagine that snake sitting amidst gravel in the dry, in an arid habitat or amidst dried leaves under a bush, you just wouldn't see it. You absolutely would not see it. And that's the danger of these snakes. They're not aggressive, but people don't see them. People step on them and they get bitten. So do they make a noise? Yes, the saw-scaled vipers do make a noise. When they're annoyed, they curl themselves up into a kind of figure of eight or pretzel-like position and rub their body coils against each other, and that produces a hissing or rubbing sound, which is really quite characteristic. I don't want to put my microphone too close to this, given that... Whoa! Don't worry. That's quite frisky. That's nothing. That's it. Now, you're manoeuvring the snake within the aquarium here, and you're using very long tongs to do this. How do you handle these? Not with the bare hands, clearly. Uh, What one normally just uses is hooks uh, with which you can hook them from cage to cage and from place to place. And to catch them in the wild, actually very long forceps with rubber padding turned out to be the most useful tool. So you've got this long hook. Put that in. Just to move the snake around very gently. So that noise was the scales rubbing against each other? Yes, it's their trademark defensive behaviour. If they get upset, which happens quite easily, then they just coil themselves up into this kind of pretzel-like figure and rub the scales against each other while inflating themselves with air, and you get this slightly hollow-sounding hiss. And the hypothesis is that this reduces their water expenditure, which is what they would have if they hissed by breathing in and out, like most snakes do. This latest research has been conducted by Axel Barlow. He's found that the type of venom these vipers produce is adapted to the prey they eat. In these snakes, some species feed on vertebrate prey, like mammals and lizards, which is quite typical food for snakes, whereas different species eat quite unusual prey, uh, that's scorpions or, or centipedes. And we found that the variation in venom composition is down to these differences in prey. So the species that eat scorpions and centipedes have a venom that's specifically adapted to feeding on that type of prey. How did you do this research, other than carefully? (laughs) It actually involved integrating many different forms of evidence. First, we looked at the diet composition of these snakes, because often, you know, real solid ecological data on snakes, such as what they actually feed on in the wild, is quite scarce. So we had to dissect hundreds of preserved museum specimens of these snakes. And that allowed us to demonstrate clearly that there was variation in the types of prey consumed. We then reconstructed a molecular phylogeny of the snake. So really you're putting together what uh, an evolutionary tree of yeah. the relationship between the, the different different species, different different variations in the snakes. Yeah, that's it, exactly. And by having this evolutionary tree, that can form a framework for us to test our hypotheses. So through establishing the variation in um, diet, we could then test the toxicity of venoms to a natural prey item, which in this case we chose a scorpion. And by mapping the data of venom toxicity and diet onto the evolutionary tree, 
we show that changes in diet in the evolutionary history of these snakes have been accompanied by an increase in venom toxicity to scorpions. So a definite relationship there between the predator and the specific prey. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in these snakes, diet and venom composition co-evolved together. The two are intimately linked. Wolfgang, in terms of evolution, why do you think this is? Why do you think there is this relationship between the snake and the prey, rather than them just producing some sort of venom that kills everything? Venom is expensive stuff. It costs the snakes a lot of energy to replenish their venom reserves after they've bitten the prey item. So for snakes that have a more or less specialized diet, it makes an awful lot of sense to produce a venom that is of high toxicity to that prey so that they only need a small amount to actually kill it, as opposed to producing a vast amount of generalist venom, which is expensive to make. Now, you said how dangerous these snakes are, and the fact that we are looking at one behind perspex, you've been handling it with this long rod with a hook on the end, and we are behind several locked doors, suggests that they indeed are dangerous. Are there implications of this research in terms of of treating of snake bites? In the long term, we would hope so. Variation in venom composition is a ubiquitous phenomenon in snakes, and it's of great relevance for the treatment of bites. So this snake that's sitting behind perspex here is a West African oscillated saw-scaled viper. The one in the cage underneath is a Pakistani saw-scaled viper. Now, if you were bitten by the uh, oscillated saw-scaled viper and you got a specific antivenom for that, you would have every chance of recovering and walking away from it. If you were to be given an antivenom against the Pakistani saw-scaled viper, you would have a 20% chance of dying. And sadly, that's actually happening nowadays because African countries with access to fewer and fewer antivenoms are now buying antivenom in from countries like India and Pakistan, and it turns out they don't work. So many people are dying needlessly as a result of that. What our research does is it starts to look at why we have this amount of variation in venom composition. And we're taking this further and we're looking at the genetic mechanisms of that. So hopefully in the long term, it may allow us to predict which snakes are likely to have different venoms, which different venoms we may have to include in an antivenom when we design one for a particular area. So in the long term, we would hope that this would have a beneficial impact. Yuck. Wolfgang Wuster with the saw-scaled vipers. That's all for now from the Manchester Ice Cloud Chamber. Feel free to send us any comments, suggestions or ideas. You'll find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed on the Planet Earth Online website. And do join us again for more news from the natural world. This podcast was produced for the Natural Environment Research Council and was presented by Sue Nelson.